0: You can open in your Bibles there to Luke chapter 22, the end of Luke 22, and then we'll be getting into chapter 23. I remember reading this book years ago about, it was sort of a a historical uh, book about who was dubbed America's first serial killer. His name was H.H. H. Holmes, and it just kind of detailed how wicked and evil this guy was. He literally built a hotel in order to, like, uh, torture people who were coming to America, the, like the World's Fair was being hosted in Chicago there. But it traced a lot of the, the detective's work in trying to capture this wicked, evil man, and uh, this, this line sticks out to me even years later having read the book. It says, Geyers traveled from hotel to hotel asking if they had seen Holmes. And then, and then he says this, though he had told the story and showed his photographs 100 times, he's talking about the, the detective now, though he had told the story and showed his photographs 100 times, he never tired and was always patient and polite. He said these were his strengths. His weakness was his belief that evil had boundaries. His weakness was his belief that evil had boundaries. He did not fully, he could not fully bring himself to grasp the evil that had been committed by the guy that he was hunting, and that was his weakness, assuming that evil had boundaries. And in our passage this morning, we see the clearest demonstration of unbridled, boundless evil, right? If there were ever an expression of evil that had no boundaries, it is the anger and the hatred and the vitriol that's directed toward Jesus that results in His crucifixion. All right, so this morning, here's the main point. I'll, I'll give it to you up front. We're looking at a large, a large passage. We'll try to move through it as quickly as we possibly can. But here's, here's the point this morning. Despite Jesus' righteousness and everyone else's guilt, He is the one who is delivered up to be crucified. Despite Jesus' righteousness and everyone else's guilt, he is the one who is delivered up to be crucified. So there's three really simple points this morning. Jesus' identity, Jesus' innocence, and then everyone else's guilt. All right, So that's that's how we're going to walk through this text this morning. I'm going to try to read it section by section. So let's read the end of chapter uh, 22 there, verses 66 through the end of the chapter. Then they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it from his own lips. So as we come to the end of chapter 22, contextually, the rooster has crowed. Peter has gone out in tears after denying his Lord. Jesus has endured this this night where he's been interrogated by different groups of people. He's been mocked, beaten. Remember, they, they, they blindfold him. Uh, punch him and then say, prophesy who hits you. This has been a terrible night. And his day comes, right, that's how, the, that's how the, the passage starts. Day has come, morning has come, and he appears before the council. Now, he's been through all this interrogation. Now, the council's job will be to kind of convene, and and they've sort of interrogated him throughout the night. They kind of know what they want to charge him with. This council will be to to, to serve the purpose of kind of formalizing the charges against Jesus. So this group of of men is sometimes called the Sanhedrin. It's the highest governing authority in, in Israel. That's not a Roman authority. Right, it consists of, of priests and, and influential people called elders, scribes who we've said are like, who are like scholars or, or lawyers in Israel. And then the chief priests would preside over this council. And these guys, they did have a decent amount of authority in Israel. But they were ultimately constrained by Roman law. Right? They, they had some power, they had some authority, but they couldn't just run wild and do whatever they wanted to. They had to operate under the bounds of Rome's authority. And so they get Jesus and they're trying to get some information out of him or sort of formalize these accusations against him so that they might go to Rome because Rome had the authority to put Jesus to death. That's what they want to do in this meeting. And so as Jesus is before this council, there's, there's three titles that sort of drive this, this last paragraph in chapter 22. It kind of, and that's why we're talking about Jesus' identity. Because sort of, the whole text sort of revolves around these three titles for Jesus. The first one shows up there in verse 67. If you are the Christ, tell us. Now Christ is, is a title. It right, sort of came to be used as almost a name for Jesus, but initially it's, it's a title. It means anointed one. It means the Messiah. It was a title given to the, to the long-awaited Savior and King who was promised to Israel who would come and deliver His people and fulfill all of God's promises. And so, this group of religious scholars and leaders and priests, they ought to have been looking for the Christ. They ought to have been looking for the Messiah. But what's so sad about our text, and it indicates their blindness and their hardness of heart, is they don't even stop to ask, Could he be the Christ? Could he be the Messiah? It reminds me of when we were in Matthew around Christmas time. And the scribes and the scholars, they knew where where the Messiah was going to be born, and they just gave the answer. They never even looked. They never even went to see if this could truly be the one, the promised Savior, the Deliverer. But they're not interested in that. All they want is is an accusation that they can take before Pilate, and that's the reason Jesus answers the way he does in verse 67. If I told you, you would not believe it. They're not concerned about the truth. They're only concerned about finding a way to put Jesus to death. And then he says, you know, even if I were to, even if I were to interact with you, or if I were to raise a question, you wouldn't answer it. And they've proven that earlier. As Jesus kind of came back with their questions, there was no good answer because Jesus' wisdom is so far beyond theirs. And so they did not answer. And so Jesus knows he's dealing with spiritual blindness and hard-heartedness. And so he just says, even if I told you, you would not believe. So the first title there is Christ. But Jesus does go on to refer to himself as the Son of Man. The Son of Man. Right. This has been a favorite title for Jesus throughout the Gospel of Luke as we've kind of walked through this Paragraph by paragraph, we've seen that Jesus often refers to himself as the Son of Man, talks about the Son of Man. The Son of Man is going to come back on the clouds. The Son of Man must be betrayed and beaten and crucified and will rise again. Over and over and over, we see this, this idea of the Son of Man. And, and so we, we've been saying this. Though, though it does have some kind of connotation that, that the Son of Man will be human, right? the way the Son of God is, is God, Though it kind of carries this connotation that Jesus will be fully Man, it actually says more than that. The, the title, the Son of Man, remember, it looks back to Daniel's prophecy, back in Daniel chapter 7, where the Son of Man is the one who is able to approach the Ancient of Days, and he's given an everlasting dominion, he's given an eternal kingdom. And so by the time you get to the New Testament, you're supposed to be like, who's this Son of Man who's, who's fully man, but he's, he can approach the Ancient of Days and he can rule forever. And the answer is found in the incarnation. The God-man, Jesus Christ, alone is the one who can be the Son of Man and the Son of God. Right. So Jesus says, he he calls himself the Son of Man, and he says, and I'm going to sit at the right hand of the Father. From now on, he says, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Now that's an allusion to Psalm 110, which says, We looked at this even a couple chapters ago. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And remember, Jesus kind of proposed that question to his enemies to say, well, who is this? Who is this Lord that can talk to the Lord? Right? And we talked about the triune God and the Son's relationship with the Father. Jesus made the point that he is the son of David. He came from David's line, but he's also David's Lord. Right? So how can the Son of David be the Lord of David outside of the eternal Jesus coming to this earth? Right? And this Lord, Jesus Christ, will sit at God's right hand, and that is to share in the authority of the Father and the rule of the Father. So when Jesus answers the question, it's as if he says, do you want to know who I am? Then read Daniel 7 and read Psalm 110. Then you'll know who I am. I'm the Son of Man who will sit at the right hand of the Father. And the irony in the text is that though this council presumes that they are sitting in judgment over Jesus, By Jesus taking upon Himself the title of Son of Man, saying that He will sit at the right hand of the Father, He is telling them, I will sit in judgment over you. I will be the judge of all men. See, Jesus shortly following these events, after His crucifixion, His resurrection, His his ascension, He will be exalted, lifted high to the right hand of the Father. And what's interesting in the text is that his, his enemies are bringing about the very events that will lead to his exaltation. Right? In Philippians chapter 2, he's humbled himself for this time. It, 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 he humbled himself even to the point of death. But God has highly exalted him and given him a name above every name. So they are actually bringing about the events that will lead to the very exaltation of Christ in their own judgments. And they don't realize that they're setting their own trap, and they don't realize it because they're obsessed with with trapping Jesus, and they've laid their own snare. They're sort of at this point licking their chops because they they know they've they've heard from Jesus something that they can take to Pilate, and this will this will potentially concern Pilate. They are convinced that Rome will be. Very interested in a man who says he has supreme authority, authority over all men. Then the third title we see in that first uh, paragraph there is the Son of God. So after Jesus an- answers that way, they say, Are you the Son of God then in verse 70? And as those who have been walking through Luke for some time, we know the answer to that. Are you the Son of God? We know the answer to that. At the baptism of Jesus, the Father speaks from heaven, you are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. At the Mount of Transfiguration, when Peter talks, God interrupts him and says, this is my Son. Listen to him. When Satan came to tempt Jesus, he says, if indeed you are the Son of God, do this. When, When Jesus confronts these demons, they cry out, you are the Son of God. We saw it in the parable of the vineyard owner where the the vineyard owner sends the son to the wicked tenants. And most of all, we've seen it and we've heard it clearly from Jesus' own lips in chapter 10 when he referred to God as his Father. Jesus is the Son of God. That means that Jesus is God. Right? The fact that he is the Son means that he's, he's distinct from the Father, but he possesses the same divine nature or, or essence as the Father. Now these, these Jewish leaders probably don't understand the fullness of the title of the Son of God. Right? They don't understand that Jesus is the eternal Son, But they do know that he's claiming to be the Messiah and that he's claiming to have a unique relationship with the Lord. And so they ask the question, are you saying that you are the Son of God? And Jesus replies in verse 70, you say that I am. Jesus is, is, again, he's not real interested in answering their questions because he knows they're not real questions. So he answers, honestly, a bit sarcastically, You said it. It's almost like he's saying, the, the words have come out of your mouth, even though you don't believe them. Even though you don't believe it. And so in our text, we see Christ. We see that he is the Messiah, the Son of Man, the Son of God, the Deliverer, the one who is exalted over all creation, and the just judge of every person. And this is the one who is being ridiculed and mocked and beaten. And the truth is, it's not primarily to, to boast in our own knowledge. This is not primarily an academic exercise. I think we're meant to stop and wonder at the person or at the identity of Jesus. I think the text is asking us, do you believe this about Jesus? Or to, parap- to quote Jesus' question earlier, who do you say that I am? We see the wisdom, the glory, the self-control, the power, the meekness, all on display announcing that Jesus is worthy of our adoration, he's worthy of our love, he's worthy of our worship. And so at this point, the leadership is satisfied that they have enough to condemn Jesus. In fact, they ask there in verse 71, essentially, what more do we need? We've heard it from his own lips. But again, they just have one problem, and that problem is that they don't have the authority to carry out a death sentence. They've discerned in their own mind that Jesus is worthy of death, but they need to get Pilate involved. And so that's what happens there in the beginning of chapter 23. I'm going to read through verse 16 there. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him, and Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then, arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate, and Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day, for before this they had been at enmity with each other. So we saw Jesus' identity as the Christ, the Son of Man, the Son of God, and then secondly, we see Jesus' innocence. So when they bring Jesus before Pilate, they understand that a charge of, of blasphemy will not carry weight with Pilate. He won't really care about that. right? In fact, you see instances in Acts where the Jews try to make religious points about Paul even, and they say, I don't care about that. You kind of govern yourselves in these matter, these matters. He won't care so much about a theological dispute. Right? So notice the charges that they bring against him there, beginning in verse 2. Here's the accusations. We found this man misleading our nation, forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and calling himself a king. They say, we we have found this man guilty of misleading the nation. In other words, they're accusing him of kind of creating social unrest. He agitates the people. And you can see why they want to bring this sort of accusation before Pilate. Pilate doesn't want to be overseeing an area under Roman occupation and have reports get back to home base that that his area is unrestful, that the people are continually agitated. So they want to frame this in a particular way that Pilate might have a vested interest in putting Jesus to death. Use your authority to put him to death so things can stay calm under your jurisdiction and we'll be good, and you'll be good. So they claim that he's misleading the people. They also claim that he's misled the people by forbidding them from paying taxes to Rome. Now we know that's just a straight-up lie. Right, they tried to actually get Jesus to say this in his own words earlier, and Jesus said, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and render unto God the things that are God's. And so they couldn't get him to actually say it, so here they just bring a straight up lie as an accusation against Christ. And the third claim is true, that he claimed to be the Christ, and then, you know, most likely because Pilate wouldn't have much of a context to understand the word Christ. They define it for him. He claims to be a king, a ruler. They're obviously doing everything in their power to paint Jesus as a revolutionary threat to Rome. And actually, it's this third charge that interests Pilate. He would be interested in another king in his lands. So he asked Jesus if he is king of the Jews. Jesus responds very, very similarly to what he did to the Jewish council. He says, you, you said it. You said it. When Pilate then says that he does not think the people are guilty, or that Jesus is guilty, the people begin to push back. And they begin to throw out accusations. He has been causing trouble, not only in Jerusalem, but all throughout the land, even in Galilee. And that sort of turns on a, a light bulb for Pilate. Well, maybe, maybe Jesus isn't from Jerusalem. If he's from Galilee, he should go before Herod, and maybe Herod should, should examine this man. And so that's what he does. He finds out Jesus is from Galilee, sends him to see Herod. Herod happens to be in Jerusalem, and so Jesus goes before Herod. Now that's a man you'll remember. We we joke all the time, there's like six Herods in the Bible, hard to keep track of. This is this is the dude that had John the Baptist put to death. He was in Jerusalem and he was actually excited to see Jesus, right? If the if the verse just kind of stopped right there, you'd be like, Oh, well, that's good for Herod. He wanted to see Jesus. He wanted to see him for some time. He was excited. But it it's for all the wrong reasons. He wanted to meet Jesus for his own amusement, for his own pleasure. He hoped that Jesus would perform one of those miracles he's been hearing about. Maybe he'd turn water into wine, or maybe he'd heal one of his sick servants. But again, Jesus is not a circus performer. We've seen this this throughout the Gospel of Luke, that, that Jesus is gracious and compassionate towards those who humble themselves and come to him. He will not cast out those who humble themselves. But he is not afraid to be to be uh harsh with those who are just standing against him. He's not a circus performer. He does not do tricks. He's not there to entertain. So he remains silent before Herod. We s- You know, Jesus doesn't grovel before the one who, humanly speaking, could could change the outcome of his sentence. You don't see that in Jesus. He has nothing for those who are not truly seeking him. So he bears their scorn. They mock him. They sort of ironically put him in, in royal wardrobe and send him back. And so when Jesus... Returns to Pilate, he calls together this this council, you know the the, the elders, the high priests, the, all that council. But then there's a new a new group that's sort of added to the list there in verse thirteen. It's the people. The people are there. Now throughout Luke, there's sort of been pretty consistent opposition to Jesus from uh, from the religious leaders. There's been you know, pretty consistent devotion to Christ by his disciples. And then there's been this big group of people in the middle that Luke just kind of calls the people. The people were coming to hear Jesus. In fact, when Jesus was in the temple earlier, the people were coming out to hear Jesus. And the people were sort of, they hadn't made up their mind yet. Many of them thought John the Baptist was a true prophet, so they're willing to hear Jesus out. They, they weren't sure what to believe about Christ. Well here they are and, and the people, the crowd, the ones who have been listening to Jesus. in chapter 21, they were coming to hear him teach and in chapter 23, they've, they've turned on him, right And they're crying, they will cry out for his crucifixion. And so when Pilate has the council and he has a bunch of Israelites gathered there, he pronounces his judgment. After examining him, his judgment, Innocent of all charges. right? He says there in verse 14, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Not one accusation sticks. And even though Herod had mocked and ridiculed Jesus and disappointed that Jesus didn't do some kind of a trick for him, Herod too found Jesus innocent. And this is one of the major, I think, thrusts of this entire section. There are three times in which Pilate specifically says that Jesus is innocent. Right, He said it back in verse 4 before even sending him off to Herod. I find no guilt in this man. In verse 14, we just read that. Not guilty of any of his charges. Any of those charges. And in verse 22, what evil has he done? I find no guilt deserving death. So Luke seems to be highlighting the innocence, the purity, the righteousness of Jesus. There's also three occurrences where where Pilate tries to simply release Jesus. In verse 16, Pilate thinks, well, I'll just do a little compromise here. I'll settle the crowd and also not have to put an innocent man to death. So I'll just beat him and then I'll release him quite the justice system there. He's not innocent of he's not guilty of anything, so we'll just beat on him a little bit. But he underestimates how badly the crowd wants Jesus dead. And so the cry the crowd cries out, "Crucify him. Crucify him." Again in verse 20 and in verse 22, Pilate says he doesn't find him guilty and therefore he should be released. See, the innocence of Jesus. In fact, he's the only one we'll see in a moment. He's the only one in, in the passage that's, that's innocent. He in no way deserves to die. In one sense, we might say Pilate speaks better than he knows. Right? He doesn't know how true it really is when he says there's no guilt in Jesus deserving death. There's nothing in him that would cause his death. He's free from, from the penalty of sin for his own sin. Unlike all of us who are guilty before God and the wages of sin is death, but not Christ. There's no guilt in him. No guilt in him deserving death. He's the perfect, spotless Lamb of God. And his perfection, his perfect life qualifies him and him alone to stand as a substitute in the place of sinners. Isaiah 53.9 says, And they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit found in his mouth. What What does Paul say about every person In Romans chapter 3, how can you tell that that there's none good, there's none righteous, no, not one, there's no one who seeks after God, all have turned aside, they've all gone after their own way? How can you tell? Well, their throat, our throat is an empty grave, right? Our words betray the state of our our heart. Our words show that we are a sinful people. So for Jesus in Isaiah 53, 9, to have no deceit in his mouth means he has a perfect heart. That's why we find sin in our words, because we have sin in our hearts. Jesus is the perfect, spotless Lamb. He's righteous. He's pure. He's perfectly innocent. Not too long ago, I saw a video of a guy who was waiting outside of the Mormon tabernacle there in Salt Lake City. And as people were coming out, he was was asking them, do you believe that God was a sinner in a past life? And person after person said, yes. Yes, we believe that God was a sinner in a past life. And then he would follow up with just this, this question. Well, how does that make you feel that God was a sinner? And many of them said something like this. It makes me feel good because it makes me believe that I too can ascend to that level, the level of God. And that is dead wrong. Our only hope is not that we might ascend to that level, but that Christ has come down and taken on flesh. Our only hope is in the holy perfection of God and in the complete righteousness of the Son, that He lived a perfect life as a man. Not so that we would have an example to shoot for, but so that His obedience might be credited to us. And that explains why Jesus is headed to the cross because there's a two-way transaction that we'll talk about here in a moment, that our sins would be credited to him and his righteousness would be credited to us. So we see Jesus' innocence in the text and then it's kind of contrasted with everyone else's guilt. Let's read that last paragraph there, verses 18 through 25. But they all cried out together, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked, but he dele- delivered Jesus over to their will. All right, we're saying Jesus is completely innocent, more innocent than they even understand in the passage. But everyone else, everyone else stands guilty. So we can kind of back up in the text and kind of walk back through, kind of go back to where we started at the end of chapter 22 there. And we see that in contrast to the the innocence and the purity of Christ, we see everyone else is guilty. And we can start there with the religious leaders, the council. We saw that when Jesus responded to their question, he responded by indicating their hardness of heart. You would not listen even if I told you. He hits on their absolute unwillingness to believe, their spiritual blindness. It reminds me of the instance in John 10 where the people said, if you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Right? Same question. Jesus said, I told you and you did not believe. And he goes on to say, but my works testify to the fact that I am the Christ. This council did not lack the evidence that they needed. But they did have a hard heart. And that gets to why Jesus is not pleading his own case. They had everything they needed. The teaching, the life, the works, the character, the miracles, the power, it all testified that Jesus is the one who was promised from long ago that would come to deliver his people. But again, they're not concerned with truth. They're only concerned with getting rid of a threat. They're so concerned with sort of maintaining the status quo, maintaining their own authority and influence. So they reject their messiah. They reject their king and they reject their God. And it's not only the council, right? They've they finally managed to turn the people. They were afraid of the people, just, just not too long ago afraid to capture Jesus in the day because the people might throw a fit but now finally the people have been turned against Christ again the ones who were coming out to hear the ones who the later leadership was afraid of are now crying out for Jesus to be crucified Now one thing we 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 say about sin often is that it is completely senseless is completely senseless. There's nothing in Christ that, that, would, that, that should lead them to want him to die. But they're blinded by their hatred for God. Now, they would deny that. They would say, no, we're actually being faithful to God. We're protecting God's name from blasphemy. But they're blinded by their hatred for God. John 1 says, Jesus came unto his own, and his own received him not. It's no longer just the leadership that's guilty of rejecting the Messiah. Jesus had said earlier that the leadership is like the blind leading the blind. You know, when Peter addressed a group of of Israelites in Acts chapter 3, we're talking about the guilt of everyone in the passage, including the people. Peter stands up and he's talking to the men of Israel. He says this, The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, The God of our fathers glorified His servant Jesus, whom you delivered, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the Holy One and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. They stand guilty. What about Herod? Herod? Right? Herod didn't find anything worthy of, of death in Jesus. He sent him back to Pilate. Is, is Herod guilty? Maybe you remember what Jeff read from the scripture reading this morning, where this is the, it quoted Psalm 2, which Dan read, and it said, Gathered there in Jerusalem were rulers, Herod and Pilate, against the Lord's anointed. They were gathered against him along with the Gentiles and along with the peoples of Israel. They conspire against Christ. Verse 12 says that Herod and Pilate became friends that very day. Before this, they were at enmity with one another. But what better to unite two enemies than shared hatred for Jesus? It's the one thing they can bond over. Herod wanted Jesus for... Amusement, he wanted to be entertained, and when he doesn't get what he wants, he mocked him and sent him back. What we see, the way the, the way the apostles retell this text, and the way they incorporate Psalm 2 into the text, says Pilate and Herod are conspiring against the Lord's anointed, against the Son, they should have kissed the sun, if you remember Psalm 2. They should have fallen down and worshipped the sun. They should have turned to the sun, but they conspire against them. The nations plot against the Lord's anointed, the Messiah, the Son of Man, the Son of God. And Psalm 2 is is—it's continuing to be fulfilled in this day. We shouldn't be surprised that governments and kings and presidents and all sorts of rulers blaspheme the Lord and they set themselves up against Him and against Christ. I don't know where you're at, but as I sort of look around at the ungodliness, the lack of character, the intentional disregard for anything that sounds like godliness in our, in our leadership, in our world, I, I can become discouraged. Right? I feel torn because in some sense it helps me to check out and kind of quit caring as much about politics, but at the same time it, it gets a little worrisome. Well, we can be comforted this morning. As we look at the way the the apostles applied Psalm 2, and they said that day in Jerusalem, some of the most powerful men in the world arrayed themselves against Christ. They plotted against Him. They orchestrated everything they thought according to their own gain. They blasphemed God. But Psalm 2 says it's all in vain. It's all in vain. And the apostle says it's in vain because they were doing the very thing that God's hand had predetermined, had predestined for them to do in the first place. They were fulfilling the salvation plan of God for Jesus to be rejected and crucified. And that brought about the greatest good, the salvation of God's people and the exaltation of Christ to the right hand of God, where he governs all of creation for the good of his church. Even when we look around and we see kings and rulers arrayed against God and plotting against them. The Lord sits in the heavens and he laughs, Psalm 2 says. Perhaps the most tragic part of the story is, is Pilate. I think, because Pilate seems so close. He seems so close to the truth. He tries repeatedly to announce the innocence of Jesus. He tries to to reason with them. He tries to convince them that Jesus should be released. Even though he finds no guilt in Jesus, even though in verse 22 he tries to get the crowd to see that this is completely and utterly senseless, he he just asks them, why? Why are you doing this? What evil has he done? Even though he tries then to kind of come up with some kind of compromise, ultimately, Pilate gives in to the demands of the crowd. Look there at verse 23. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. Their voices prevailed. And then verse 25, he delivered Jesus over to their will. Certainly, Pilate's not as innocent as maybe we want to assume. A man who fears the crowd, a man who is willing to send his innocent, an innocent man to death in order to protect his own reputation and power and status in Rome is not innocent. Pilate is like the leader who said, there, go, <laughs> there goes my people, I better figure out where they're going so I can lead them. He's no leader. He's just giving in. Pilate is nothing more than a politician who's willing to follow the crowd even when the crowd wants to do the most heinous thing. He traded justice for peace and popularity. He fears man and he gives in and he follows the crowd. And what did the crowd want? They wanted a man named Barabbas to go free. And they wanted Jesus to be put to death. You know, there's a theme in the Gospels, I kind of alluded to it earlier, that sometimes the enemies of God say and do things that are truer than they realize. Right? A very clear example of that is when, when Caiaphas says, you know what, it's better for one man to die than for the whole nation to perish. He has no idea the depth of that statement. But he says it. Right, we pointed that out with Pilate earlier. Jesus, I think, does this when he says, you said it. Right, They're saying true words even though they don't believe them. So there's these instances where people are doing and saying things that, that, are, that are images or pictures or, the, or they're truer than they realize. And I think that's what we have here as our text ends. Without realizing what they're doing, Pilate, the religious leader, and the people... Who are just out to have Jesus put to death? They are about to give one of the clearest images and pictures of the gospel. There was a custom in Jerusalem where Pilate would release one prisoner as a show of good faith, you know, as a means to sort of appease the occupied people. It's it's just to quell the desire that that, that might lead to unrest. He would sort of give one prisoner back so they don't think so poorly of these Roman occupiers. And Pilate thinks, okay, I've got an idea. I will offer them Jesus or this man named Barabbas. And Barabbas is so vile that there's no way they'll, they'll not choose Jesus, and I can kind of get myself out of this jam. But the whole crowd cries, away with this man, away with Jesus, give us Barabbas. Right? In contrast to Jesus' innocence, Barabbas had been examined and not found innocent. He had been found guilty of insurrection and murder. He's a modern day terrorist. Matthew's gospel calls him a notorious prisoner. And so we see really clearly that if the accusers of Jesus really cared about someone who was going to lead an insurrection, that's what they're trying to pin on Jesus. If they really cared about someone who was misleading the people or agitating them, or I'm going out on a limb here and saying, I doubt Barabbas paid his taxes to the government that he tried to overthrow. If they really cared about these sort of accusations that they're bringing, they would have Barabbas is the man to whom those accusations would stick. And I think it's fitting in the text that Barabbas is guilty of the very sins that Jesus has been declared innocent of. And so the guilty, the guilty man goes free. And the king, the Messiah, the anointed one, the innocent one, goes to his death. And I do think this is meant to be a picture of the gospel: that the guiltless one is put to death, and the one who deserves to die goes free. That's the gospel. There is no one. There was no one who is righteous and will and can stand uncondemned before a holy and righteous God. Yet Christ took the guilt and condemnation and penalty for. Sin upon Himself. He bore it in His body as a substitute, pardoning, forgiving, and even crediting with His perfect life, His own righteousness for those who turn to Him and trust in His finished work. They will be treated as as innocent, as innocent as Christ, His very record given to you. A man like Barabbas goes free. Because Jesus goes to the cross. Sounds to me like 2 Corinthians 5.21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That is the great exchange of the gospel. That he is credited with our sin, that we might be credited with his righteousness. So as we approach the cross and our walk through Luke, we ask, what kind of king is Jesus? He's the Messiah. He's the Son of Man. He's the Son of God. What kind of king is he? He's the kind of king that lays down his life for his subjects. And We also see that all that has gone on, all the plotting, all the raging, all the conspiring, it's part of the plan. It's part of the plan. There's nothing that can stop God's good plan to bring redemption and the forgiveness of sins through His Son, Jesus Christ. Praise God that He has accomplished that for us. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your wisdom on display and how you chose to save. Lord, we would have never come up with that. We would have never considered the Son of God taking on flesh, living a perfect life, dying a sacrificial death, being raised from the grave, exalted to your right hand so that those who turn in faith could be forgiven and united to Christ. We praise you for your wisdom. We praise you for your grace. You did not have to save, yet you chose to. We praise you for who you are and what you've accomplished for us. In Jesus' name, amen.